Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. Thank you for the gift of spending time with us as we continue to consider the things God has made known in Christ that we can grow more effectively in our faith in Him. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. Before we continue, let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us, for you and your love and care for us, for the life you've given us in Jesus, for the Spirit and the Word, for one another, all the blessings of life. We are mindful of those who are ill. We ask that you will heal them. We ask that you would provide comfort and strength for those who are in distress or in grief, that you support and strengthen all of us at this time. As we're about to consider what you've made known to us, we pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to come to a better understanding of what you have revealed, that we may be able to more effectively glorify, honor you in our lives, and strengthen and sustain us until the end. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Today, let us consider a story from of old, a story that takes place sometime in the period of the Judges, a time period of great upheaval in the time of the Israelites, a time where the Philistines are on the march and causing great distress, especially to the tribes of Judah and Dan, where their tribal allotments kind of are right there by where the Philistines are. And the Danites are looking for a place that they can live, a place that they can maintain the homeland that they are supposed to have. And so, probably toward the end of this period of the Judges, sometime in the days of Samson, or perhaps even into Eli or Samuel, even though those are in 1 Samuel, they are still period of the Judges. We are told that in these days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God has been sending judges to judge the people. You could also consider them warlords to liberate the people from various enemies uh, that they have been enslaved to because of their persistent idolatry and not honoring Yahweh as their king. And the stories that we're going to consider at the end of Judges are really an appendices. They're narrated to express uh, the situation that Israel finds itself in here at the end of, of the time of the Judges. And so, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim in Judges 17, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by Yahweh. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Yahweh from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we have the beginning of this story. We know nothing else about these people. He lives in Ephraim, which is uh, to the north of Judah, and to the uh, east and northeast of, of the, the tribal allotment of Dan. And all we know is this man Micah had 1,100 pieces of silver he somehow took from his mother. Uh, his mother uttered a curse about it. And uh, he rest restores his money to his mother, 
And because of this, there's this, this sentiment of religious feeling that some of it should be dedicated to Yahweh. And make, making it very clear here that Yahweh is in mind. This is not some other foreign pagan god, Yahweh. Uh, and then money, which is pretty a decent amount of money. Uh, but what's important about it is that these 200 pieces of silver can be uh, molted together to create this carved image. This molten image. So it's a statue uh, to represent Yahweh. Maybe a bull or a calf, which seems to be the preferred way of representing Yahweh by image. Uh, which, of course, is expressly against the Second Commandment. Uh, Micah then has an, a shrine. He puts up an ephod, uh, which is a garment which is only supposed to be worn by the priests. He has uh, the teraphim, or household gods, which are uh, these kind of pagan divinities of the home. And he then ordained one of his sons to be a priest. And all of this is explained to a degree in verse 6 that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no central authority providing any kind of uh, policing of this in any way, shape, or form. And so the story continues in verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes in your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest." Some interesting details that we get out of this story. Okay, so we have a Levite. Remember back in the uh, law, Levites had no patrimony. There was no piece of land allotted to the Levites. Instead, the Levites would live in the midst of the other tribes. And so this young man has been living in the midst of Judah. And he's trying to find somewhere to live. The fact that he's not able to find somewhere to live uh, provides some kind of commentary on whether or not people were really honoring the Levites for their role or the Levites were even doing their role. And so he ends up in Ephraim, and he ends up coming to the house of Micah. And Micah's more than happy to have him come in and be a priest to him. Uh, which means Micah understands that a Levite should be priest. And in fact, we'll say that he is now confident Yahweh is going to bless him with his statue and his household god and the ephod. Because now he has uh, at least made it better. It's not his son who is an Ephraimite who's priest. It's now this Levite who's the priest. Because Levites are supposed to be priests. Which kind of gives the lie to any indication that everybody was just doing whatever they felt. Because uh, some of these things had not yet been codified. Uh, we also see that the living that Micah would get from this. He would get... Um, a suit of clothes and uh, his room and board, but also 10 pieces of silver for his actual wage above all of that. And so again, that just points out how uh, much this 1,100 pieces of silver is really worth when, okay, fine, room and board would be worth something, but beyond that, that 10 pieces over a year is what he's making uh, shows just how much money we're talking about here. Even to take the 200 pieces of silver to make the image, that's... Uh, 20 years worth of living for the priest, uh, which is a significant in its buying power. 
And so uh, we look at the end of this chapter here. It, it seems that everything's going well for Micah, right? Uh, there's this money. He's got this shrine. He's now got a Levite. He's expecting great prosperity. He's expecting that everything is going to go well for him because he feels like he's doing great for what God would have him to do. Um, but now we begin in chapter 18, that in those days there was no king in Israel. The author again wants to remind us. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Uh, so the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy on the land and explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. So just for a moment to stop here. Uh, so in Joshua, the land of Dan that was given to them is a little portion uh, along the Mediterranean Sea and into the middle uh, of the land of Israel, just north of Judah and south of, of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so it's a little portion there that the Canaanites held strongly and then the Philistines would have taken over. This is probably why Samson, who is a uh, Danite, uh, has so many dealings with the uh, Philistines in uh, the, end, the chapters of Judges beforehand, in chapters 13 through 16. And so they do have an inheritance, but they've not been able to conquer it from their own rebelliousness and the challenges that they come across. And so now they're trying to find a place where they can live. And so they're sending out these spies, and they find Micah, and they find out everything going on here, and then they ask him to inquire of God. And you know what's interesting is, is they asked that he would do that, and then the response is just, yes, it's going to be under the eye of Yahweh. And so th there's a lot of questions there. Uh, did he actually inquire? Did Yahweh actually say that uh, his eye was they were under his eye? Uh, is this projection? Is is Yahweh really blessing this? We can't know for certain because again, this entire narrative has this cloud over it that it's just being done because there's no king, there's no centralized authority dictating how things are supposed to go. So then in verse 7, the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the matter of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is a very good land. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. Laish is in the high north area, uh, north of all the other tribal allotments of Israel, and to the east of, of Sidon. Sidon is on the coast. Laish is kind of uh, just north of the, the Sea of Galilee. And so it is a land dwelling in peace, but it's prone. It's open uh, to attack. 
And so the Danites believe indeed they have been prospered and blessed, and so they exhort their people to get ready to go. So 600 of the men of, of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jearim in Judah. On account of that, this place is called Mahanedan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jearim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Again, the text often will do this, uh, provide etiology to explain why things are named. Why is there a place called the Camp of Dan in the middle of Judah by Kiriath-Jearim? Well, that's because that's where the Danites encamped as they were going north. And so now they're at Micah's house. And so the five men who had gone to scout the country of Lias said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, metal household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now consider what you will do. Now, before we go any further, we should ask the question, well, what should they do? Well, in Deuteronomy 13, the law says they should have destroyed the idols and killed the idolaters. Uh, that they're, To get rid of the stain and the stamp of idolatry uh, from the house of Israel. Um, but, what will they do? In verse 15, they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with the weapons of war. And when these went to Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to him, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And so we see uh, how this turns out. Uh, you could imagine that the priest uh, felt maybe a little coerced. There's 600 dudes with weapons, and uh, that might be an inducement. But we shouldn't believe that. Uh, the, hey, the Levite is being given a promotion. Right now, he's a priest for one man's household. Now he can be a priest to a whole tribe, and that is a much higher position of prestige and power and influence. And so he's very happy to follow after. And so now they are stealing. They are taking this god. They're taking this the teraphim, the household idols. They're taking the father. They're taking Micah's whole thing that Micah has so diligently built up. And so in verse 21, they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. What have I left? How then do you ask me? What is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. So we see here the end of what Micah has. Micah figured that he was going to be in this great place where he had God's prosperity, everything was going well for him, he had all of these things, but now all of it's been taken, all of it has been seized, and what can Micah do? He has found there are 600 dudes with weapons, and Micah can't bring enough guys to fight 600 dudes, and so now Micah has to realize that, well, there's no king in the land, might makes right, 
And so now his Levite and all of his stuff is being taken with the Danites, and he has been left with nothing. And so in verse 27, The people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehov. There they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. And as if the scandal couldn't get any worse. Yes, certainly. The Danites prospered in their way. They found a people uh, that were easy to, to conquer, and they conquered them. They have established the city of Dan. The text has now shown us how it was that the tribe of Dan, which was originally supposed to be literally in the middle of the Israelites, end up being the northern part of the Israelites. But we've identified the Levite. We've not known who he is yet. He is Jonathan ben Gershom ben Moses. Uh, and this is a scandal in the text. Uh, Moses, there are some texts that will say Manasseh. Um, the reason why Manasseh is because, the, I mean, there's possibility that there was a, a textual variant uh, or somebody has switched the name at some point. But when it comes to all the evidence, it's much more likely for us to imagine that Moses was seen as just a shameful thing, that the descendant of Moses would be doing this. And therefore, in shame, the name, uh, some of the, the letters were transposed a little bit to turn uh, Moshe into Manasseh. Uh, and it shows the deep shame that this text would engender in, in later uh, scribes and commentators. Uh, it's also noted that um, as long as we accept the view that the judges period is of a few hundred years, that there's going to be multiple generations here between Jonathan and Moses. And this happens sometimes where there will be a conflated uh, genealogy, where you will take out certain people in the genealogy to identify uh, a previous ancestor. Um, the son of uh, Gershon, the son of Moses, is not in any full genealogy uh, to have a son named Jonathan. Uh, so that's why we believe that we're supposed to understand that uh, Jonathan is descended from Moses by Gershom, uh, even though that there was probably a few generations between Gershom and Jonathan himself. And so... Uh, we see that the difficulties have even reached the family of Moses himself, which is something that's shameful uh, for many years. And in fact, Jonathan's descendants will continue to serve the Danites as priests until the captivity in 722. So this is something that's going to continue on for at least another 300 years or so. Uh, and the idol was set up as long as the tabernacle was at Shiloh. And so this is likely until maybe the time of the early kings of Saul and of, um, of David. And so we learn of Micah's rise and fall and a lot about Israel in the days of the judges here. So what are we supposed to take from this story? Well, we can see a lot of things about religion according to man and what happens in religion as a warning and a danger for us. Perhaps the greatest difficulty we see is how there are all of these truths about what God has made known that are assimilated with worldly practice. 
And one of the important things to realize in Judges 17 and 18 is that everybody involved in this story, Micah, Micah's mother, the Levite, the Danites, they are all believers in Yahweh. They all recognize Yahweh as their God, the God of Israel, who delivered them out of Egyptian bondage and brought them into the land of Israel. Yet, what do they do? We see that Micah has taken silver that his mother has dedicated and has made a graven image out of it, which is expressly against the second commandment. They should not make for themselves a carved image or graven image of anything of the world, uh, let alone making it and calling it Yahweh. Why would they do that? What would possess them? For what reason would they even think of doing something like that? Well, everybody around them, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Edomites, the uh, Moabites, the Midianites, the Mesopotamians, they all made and served idols. The only nation that was called upon to serve God uh, and not make idols was Israel. And so Micah and the Danites are just taking the practices of the world and they do them uh, for Yahweh. Uh, in fact, the household gods. Uh, Rachel steals Laban's household gods and they enter Jacob's household that way. The household gods, these teraphim are something we see over and over and over again uh, throughout generations. And this is a common trend. We see this frequently where people will confess the true God and yet a lot of their practices demonstrate that what they're really doing is that they're assimilating what they've learned from what God has made known in Christ with the ways of the world. We see this in Christian nationalism, where people are trying to make uh, a strong claim about America as a Christian nation, or justifying what America does, or American policies based upon certain uh, contorted biblical rationales. We see this in church and faith traditions that really have come from worldly origins. Things that you will not find in the pages of the New Testament, but you can see in uh, the practice of the world. Uh, from everything from the style of governance in the Catholic Church, which represents uh, the Roman Curia, which kind of comes from Roman legal and, and practices and, and uh, the practices of the Roman Empire, uh, to um, the conflation of American festivities and religious festivities in modern-day performances in, in assemblies and uh, nationalistic celebrations and, and the use of instruments and, and so on and so forth. And this is why in 1 John 2, 15-17, John warns us to not love the world or things in the world. Uh, James 4, that, enmity, that friendship of the world's enmity toward God, that there's going to be this, uh, this contrast in the ways of God and the ways of the world. To so the point where 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18, Paul asks us, what concord can Christ have with the world? What connection can they maintain? And that is why we cannot dilute and pollute the truth of what God has made known in Scripture with the practice of the world. We need to always be on guard that uh, we are not just bringing in worldly ideas and baptizing them, uh, but instead understanding that there are things that are true out in the world, but if they're true, they're true in what God has made known in Christ, and that we need to hold firm and be rooted and established in Christ in Colossians chapter 2. And we can see that there's all kinds of adaptations in the way that God was being served. Uh, we saw that Micah had a shrine with the household gods and his ephod, even though that the only approved place of sacrifice was the tabernacle. That he had his son as priest for a while. And we know that he understands that that's not ideal, because when the Levite comes around, he is very proud of himself that now he has a Levite. And this, he believes, is going to secure God's favor. Uh, because the Levites were the legitimate priests of Numbers chapter 3. 
Uh, Levites were not necessarily to be personal priests, but were to minister uh, to Yahweh for all the people. And it's these kinds of changes and adaptations that are going to be something that will happen over and over again. We probably should even see here with Ephraimite priests and an ephod and a statue of Yahweh in Ephraim is all kind of alluding to what Jeroboam is going to do in a few generations in Second Kings chapter, First Kings chapter twelve. Uh, God does not approve of these things, and the fact that these things would be done in these tribes was going to lead to their exile which is what 2 Kings 17 uh, sets out to explain. And of course, uh, the same temptation exists to show major and minor adaptations of the service that God would give us today. That is why we are to not uh, be conformed to this world, be transformed by the ruling of our minds in Romans 12 and verse 2, that we should uh, be holy living sacrifices to um, establish the, the uh, perfect righteous will of God uh, and not to dilute that and to just do whatever we want to do or do what seems right to us or to do uh, what practices appeal to the senses in the world uh, and justify them as somehow glorifying God. We see also this trend towards self-justification and self-affirmation. In the end of Judges 17, again, Micah is just convinced that Yahweh is going to bless him because he now has a Levite as priest with his graven image and the ephod and the household gods and all of that. And all these things are being done contrary to what he has established in the law of Moses. And all of this prosperity. The priests, the idols, the ephod, the gods are taken from him by the Danites. And so does he prosper? No, he doesn't prosper. Uh, what you see is they're operating in the ways of the world. They're following the rules of the ways of the world. They're doing their own thing. And what happens when you do your own thing? Uh, there's somebody stronger who's going to come and take your stuff. And that's exactly what Micah learned, that in a world of dog-eat-dog, might uh, makes right. And that's the way it goes. And Israel would be forced to learn this lesson time and time again. One of the ways you can distill the message of the prophets, like in Habakkuk, is when God gives you over to the ways of the world, it is done to you according to the ways of the world, and you are swallowed up. And that is why you don't want to find yourself in that position where you are uh, governing yourself on the ways of the world. And we see this today. There are a lot of people who are just convinced God is going to bless them because they have changed a couple things in their lives to be more consistent with God's purposes, yet maintaining all kinds of things that, in fact, are not. And it's based on their feelings. Certainly God's going to bless me now because I'm doing this or that. Well, what's the substance to that feeling? And are they really doing what God wills? And we can see here that just because we get a couple things sorted out doesn't mean we're now centered in the will of God or that God is going to bless us because of that. In fact, the whole situation uh, is speaking to this very unhealthy idea that, ah, if we've got all these things sorted out in the right order, now God's going to bless us. As if we just have to do the magic spell or push the right buttons and then out dispenses God's blessings uh, to understand that there's a lot more going on there. And the goal is to, uh, to become one with God in a relationship and to, be in the, to humble oneself to be strengthened and sustained through whatever you need to endure in His strength and by His might uh, and to not depend so much on our performance but on Him and His faithfulness uh, for our hope and our strength. And of course we see, especially in chapter 18, this collective depravity that the situation is not just Micah's house alone. Uh, we see that tribe of Dan asking, you know, there's this ephod, there's this priest, there's this carved image, you know, what are you going to do about that? And 
any hope we had that they were going to do what God asked them to do was completely dashed. Instead, the idea was, it's there, we should take it for ourselves. And that Moses' descendants, Jonathan and afterward, are complicit in, in this whole situation. And they can feel justified, right? Why not? If you are being a priest to one person, why not be a priest to a whole tribe? It's a very appealing logic. And to be a priest, you need to have the objects, and so they're all right there. So why not take them? Well, they're, they're Micahs. Well, uh, we have more people than Micah has. So what's Micah going to do about it? And there's nothing Micah can do about it. And everybody seems to uh, uh, just justify themselves because it works. It happened. God is blessing their way. The Danites do conquer Laish and turn into Dan. The descendants of Jonathan remain as priests. This seems to work because it meets with success. And that's a big problem. That A lot of times depravity can be justified because it seems to work. Uh, we have seen in the history of Christianity all kinds of ungodly practices. Uh, you have the Crusades and the Inquisition. You have all kinds of coercive force being applied and hierarchies God never imagined. And it's all justified because it happened and it worked and it was effective. It didn't get justification what God made known in Christ. It made got a justification because it worked out in the world. And it's always tempting to go and do the thing where um, the ends justify the means. But we are to be, as the church, the pillar and support of the truth. We are to manifest and embody Jesus, which means we're not always going to gain the victory on earth. That We're going to maybe suffer. We might find ourselves marginalized or few and in distress. But um, everybody else is doing it, or it works, is no real justification. And... This is very important for us because so many people think, well, I've gotten a good result, therefore everything must be well in what I have done. And that, of course, is not at all true. Uh, we need to test the spirits in First John 4, 1 and 2. We need to see if, you know, the, the, end must, the means must meet the end. And if we have reached a, a positive end through ungodly means, God has not been justified or glorified. God has not been honored. And God will judge. We need to be honest that neither growth or loss or large numbers or small mean a group is true or faithful. Uh, we know that many will take the smooth path of destruction in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, but only a few will find the way to life. But the many and the few are not specifically delineated. And just because a given group is a few does not mean they are the few. They could just be a self-deceived part of the many uh, who are uh, pretending that they are something they really are not. And this is why we've got to be careful about looking to our success to justify us. Uh, in the world, people want to see how many numbers you have, how much growth do you have, as if that is really the metric. It is true that God will bless the, the work done in his name that is done faithfully and to honor him. But the way he blesses it may not be obvious to us. And this is where we go back to 1 Corinthians 3, 5, 3, to realize that one may plant, another may water. It's God who gives the increase. That everyone who will receive their commendation from God, and that in the end it's about... This, what God has done and, and that God is glorified that's all that really matters and we need to get away from the toxic viewpoint that makes it all about the uh, results of our work uh, that that's what we glory in and instead to glory in the one who has empowered us to work and there's a big difference there that has been missed time and time again 
So indeed, all these things are being done when there's no king in Israel, that everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And what is right in their own eyes? The building of idols, having priests, stealing, among other things. Uh, they certainly felt like they were doing what was acceptable to God. But uh, who was that authority? In the end, it was not God, but themselves. And hey, we find that situation many times, that uh, there's no king in America, and especially in matters of religion, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so the question is, are we going to be everyone? Are we just going to do what seems right, what we judge is right? Because uh, if we're going to do that, as we can see in Judges, it's not going to work out well. And Jeremiah 10.23, it is not within man to direct his own steps. That is why we need to be the remnant who is faithful to God. That if we do what is right in our eyes, we're going to suffer woe. Uh, at the judgment. And that is why it's so important that we work to make sure that we don't justify ourselves in our own sight, to put our trust in what we have done, but instead to seek after what God has made known in Christ, and to put our trust in Him, that we may obtain eternal life in Him. Let us again go back to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all that you've given us, and we're thankful for this hard message. And we understand uh, that the appeal is strong to do things the way we want to do them. We pray that you would give us the strength and wisdom to continue to put our trust in you, that we would not deceive ourselves into thinking we are trusting you, when in fact uh, we are trusting ourselves. Uh, we pray that you would expose to us how we are trusting ourselves and not you, that we may glorify you in all things, and that you give us the strength and wisdom to not put our confidence in what we do, but to put our trust and confidence in you and to seek your glory and honor in all things. Uh, we fervently pray for the return of your Son, Father, that we may share in the resurrection of life in him. In his name we pray. Amen. We're again so thankful that you've joined us today. If you've been benefited by this, please let us know. Subscribe to our podcast where you found it. Uh, reach out to us if you have questions, comments, or a prayer request, or we can be of any service at ministersofchrist.org or on social media. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.